this is the last major story concerning Isaac in the book of Genesis. We haven't had very much of him, which is odd because we spent 13 chapters looking forward to him. (laughs) But then we had the story where he was taken up to Mount Moriah, which he was sort of a, a bit player in that story. It was really about Abraham. Then there was the story where he got his bride, and that was more about the servant, probably Eliezer and Rebekah, than it was about Isaac. And then we had the birth of the children, and, and that was more about Jacob and Esau and their personalities. Last week, we saw his, his trouble with the wells. Where he was going back and forth and having to dig the well, and then they'd fill in the well, and God providing for him. And then in chapter 20. 7 and into chapter 28, but mostly chapter 27, we're going to get a story about Isaac, but even there he's going to be sharing the stage with his kids and with his wife. So this is going to be pretty much it for Isaac, except for references that the Bible will make to him later. The attention is going to shift, starting tonight, to Jacob. We've already seen Jacob as one of the twins that was born to Rebekah after 20 years of barrenness. Esau was the other twin, and we saw that Esau and Jacob, remember, we we described them as Big Red and Jake. Big Red is Esau. He was the hairy, red-skinned mountain man that was always out hunting. He was not really interested in spiritual things. He came back from a hunt one time, and he was tired and exhausted, and he sold his birthright for a pot of soup. Jacob, on the other hand, we've been calling him Jake, because Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob lived in tents. Jacob was a gentle kind of man. It said he was smooth-skinned in contrast to his brother. So we've looked at him that way. And his name, as you'll remember, means heel catcher. As in, you're running a race and you grab the person's heel in front of you and trip them up. A heel catcher. So schemer would be a good way to, to understand that name. And we saw last time also, neither one of them is a godly man. Jacob is not godly. Esau is not godly. They're both manipulators, they're schemers, and we're going to see in chapter 27 today, it's not just them, it's everyone in the family. Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau, no one comes off well in this story that we're going to look at tonight. Nobody comes out looking like somebody you'd want to imitate. And as I've said many times, just because somebody did something in the Bible does not mean that it's a good thing. Very often it's the exact opposite. Everybody is selfish. Everybody is scheming in this story. And that's going to be pretty much the story of Jacob's life until we move on to Joseph, that Jacob is a schemer. And you're going to see where he got it from in this story. And the tragedy is this family that is descended from Abraham himself is going to fall apart, which is never God's intention. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, talking about husbands and wives, says this, Did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Marriage is a spiritual thing. And what was the one God seeking? Why would God anoint marriage like that? He was seeking, it says, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God intended the family to be the place where people would learn to follow God. That it would be where love could blossom, where godliness could grow, that the children can make those mistakes when they're young and there's less risk and the parents can be there to help them. That the love between a man and woman would be perfectly exemplified between the husband and the wife. 
and that they would be a picture of Christ in the church, and that the Father and His sons and daughters would be a picture of Father and His Son Jesus. That God's plan to fill the world with godliness was the family. But we're going to see that this story is going to be a family being torn apart. And the family in, in America today is also in tatters. We could talk about the divorce rate, for example. It's about half of everybody that gets married is going to get divorced. Isn't that sad? The fatherless rate. Kids growing up without dads. We could talk about a number of different things. But it's very easy to point fingers outward and say, look at how bad everything is. And, you know, stomp your foot and wail and post on Facebook and feel like you've accomplished something. You haven't. The question you've got to ask is, where's your family? Where is your family? Are y'all a statistic? Or are you walking with Jesus? Because the Lord can do a lot of cool things with statistics when they're surrendered over to him. What about your family? That's the question we're going to be asking tonight as we look at a very bad example. (laughs) Hopefully you'll feel a little better about your family after this is all over. But let's begin at verse 34, and we're going to finish off chapter 26. These two verses properly belong to the story we're going to read tonight. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Verse 35, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau is 40 years old. Therefore, Isaac would be 100 years old when this took place because in 2526, Isaac was 60 when the twins were born. And Esau marries two Canaanite women. Two problems there. Number one, he married two of them. Number two, they were Canaanites. In fact, they were Hittites. Although I will say, and we'll address this more when we get to chapter 36, we have names of Esau's wives here and also at the end of the story we're going to read today. Chapter 36 also has a list of three wives of Esau, but the names are different. And this, of course, raises speculation. It says here that he has a wife named Basimoth the Hittite. But in chapter 36, he's going to say he has a wife named Basimoth who was a daughter of Ishmael. And he's going to marry another woman named Mahalat at the end of this story, who was a daughter of Ishmael. And the question becomes, all right, what's the deal? says he married these three, and then he said that he had these three over here. There's a number of possibilities, and I'm going to run through three of them for you quickly. Just as a reminder that we see what we consider to be inconsistencies in the scripture. And there are usually, and I would say always, very good answers for us to consider. Number one is the possibility that the names suffered in transmission. We have examples of this, where a copy of one document to the next, that an error was introduced. And this is what the process of textual criticism is for, to help us try to track those down. And the Old Testament is actually pretty outstanding in in its transmission to the extent that we know. But there are still some places where we go, okay, well, we know that, I'll just use a made up an example. We know that he didn't have 40,000 children. Maybe it meant 40, you know, things like that, that are very obvious. Maybe he skipped a line or things like that. It could be that when they were writing the names down that there were mistakes made. And in the original autograph, it's consistent. And in the, the copy that's been handed down to us, there's been an error. That is possible. But like I, I hope you can see that even if that is the case, the names of Esau's wives are, is not a theology matter. It's not a salvation matter. That's what all of those things are like. 
It's, it's like, did he have 500 kids or did he have 400 kids? Those kinds of questions. So I don't want that to shake your faith at all, but that is a possibility. But there are two that don't require resorting to that, which is number two, Esau could have had more than three wives. He seems like the kind of dude that did not care to restrict himself to one, two, or three women. And it could be that in this passage, we have the first two that he married and then the third. And then in chapter 36, we have the three who bore them children that are noteworthy in his genealogy. That's possible. It also could be, and this might sound like a cop-out, but I promise it's not. It could be that some of these are nicknames. That people use different names and their names were they're the same people, but they're using different names for them. The kings of Israel will be like this. When you look at their name in 1 Kings compared to 1 Chronicles, you've got Joram and you've got Jehoram. You've got a couple examples of this in the Bible, or it'll refer to somebody by their family name as opposed to their proper name, or sometimes you've got guys like Didymus in the New Testament. Didymus is Thomas. They're the same person. Peter is also Simon. So nicknames are used in the Bible. So there are three possibilities here. Why are the lists different? I don't know, but we've got some good options that all satisfy my faith anyway, and I hope they will for yours too. You might be sitting there wondering what's such a big deal. Maybe you're right. Let's move on. So he marries, it says here, Hittites. Hittites were descendants of a man named Het, which would have been pronounced or spelled H-E-T-H. We saw him in chapter 10 in the Table of Nations when it's giving the list of all the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the Hittites were descendants of Canaan, who was the son of Ham, who was cursed when Ham exposed his father's nakedness. Do you remember that story? So not only is he marrying somebody that is not a godly family, he's marrying like the worst of the worst, Hittites. And he's marrying two of them. Now you could say maybe they were like Ruth, where Ruth was a Moabite, but Ruth was great. Well, it's not quite like that because it said that they were bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Literally in the Hebrew is a bitterness of spirit, morath ruach. Ruach meaning spirit. Do you remember in the book of Ruth uh, when Naomi came back and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me what? Mara, which means... So this word here for bitterness is a, from the same root word. So they were bitterness of spirit. We've seen this a thousand times. It's almost a joke that the son marries a woman and she makes it miserable for the family. Now, everybody thinks that's their life, usually until you get through year three, four, or five of marriage and you realize it's fine. But there, there are instances where this does happen. So not only were they Hittites, they were awful, is the sense we get from this story. We had seen back in chapter 24, Abraham told Isaac, you will not marry a Canaanite, which is why he sent Eliezer to uh, Padan Aram to bring back Rebekah. Moses later on is going to refuse to allow the Israelites to marry the Canaanites. And he said, the reason is because you will fall in love with them and then they will take you away from the word of the Lord and away from the Lord and you'll worship their false gods. That's exactly what happened. It's what happened to Solomon. It says that Solomon married many foreign women and it said that he made each one of them a temple for their favorite God. And you go, oh, Solomon. And then, of course, you're not just going to build it. You've got to come by. You've got to come see it. You've got to at least come. Solomon, it would be kind of weird for you to come and not at least make a sacrifice or something. And that's what happened to Solomon. And that's why the Lord was displeased with him. We're going to read later that Esau, the Hebrew, book of Hebrews, calls him an unholy man or a profane or common man. He was only concerned with what was right in front of him. He had no concern for spiritual things, no regard for the promise. He sold the birthright. 
that thing that Abraham suffered for for so long. He sold it for a pot of soup. No regard for God, no regard for his family, no regard for preserving the purity of the line that was going to save all of humanity. And we can look at Esau and we can say, Big Red, you done messed up. And he did. But let me make our first quick point of application here. It's very easy to pick out the person in the family that is the most obviously messed up and point at your finger at them to feel better about yourself. When it's really the whole system, <laughs> the whole family that's got issues and everybody needs to be looking to themselves. We can't say, how could Isaac raise such a rotten kid? Well, we're going to take a look and see that Isaac wasn't doing so hot himself. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Well, Isaac said it, not me. He was old. He would have been at least 100 years old if this story happened quickly after Esau's marriage to the two Hittite women. He would have been around 100. We know later, based on how old Joseph is going to be when we get to his story and how old Jacob is, that we have a window of about 30 years here, that he's between 100 and 130 years old. I'm inclined to think he's probably on the younger end here because Jacob is not married yet. And uh, at this point, it probably would have been something he was looking to do. So he's old. Now, he says he doesn't know the date of his death. We know in the Bible he's going to live to be 180 years old. So even if we're going to choose the oldest of the possibilities here, he's still got 50 years left. So it could be that Isaac was a bit of a hypochondriac. Maybe he just thought, this is it, I'm sick, and it's, it's, it's all over for me. It could be that he had a brush with sickness, and he was afraid that this might be the sickness that's going to take my life or some kind of injury. Maybe the fact that he had gone blind scared him a little, and he was feeling his own mortality, and he wanted to set up what was going to come after him. So it doesn't really matter. There's plenty of explanations for that. But the point is, he wants to give Esau the blessing. And the fact that he's blind is, is kind of symbolic, I think, in this passage of the fact that he's not seeing what's going on in front of him and he's not seeing what's spiritually happening, what the Lord's will is. And he's also unable to see the divisions in his own family. He's preparing to give the blessing to Esau. This blessing is the Baraka. This is a formal passing on of the rights of the father to the son. We talked before about the birthright, which was called the Bekora, and that was the rights that you got when you were born. But it seems, at least from this story, that the blessing took precedence over the birthright. That you might have the birthright, Jacob, but if Esau gets the blessing, it doesn't really matter. Maybe the father had some kind of discretion over who got what based on the birthright. But we know from chapter 25, verse 23, God had told Rebecca, and we can assume she told her husband, the older will serve the younger. God had already expressed his will on what was to happen with these two boys, and that was that Jacob was to be the one to carry on the promise. And Isaac is going to decide to give Esau the blessing anyway. Isaac really comes across as a sensual man here. And by that I mean he's, he's in touch with his senses. <laughs> he loves Esau's cooking. And it's almost 
awkward how he's talking about just bring me the food so that I'll give you your blessing. And, and it says, Rebecca loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau because he loved the food that Esau cooked. And then later on, is, is Rebecca's like, I'll cook the food just like he likes it. You kind of get the impression that Isaac was a bit of a glutton. That maybe he was sort of like, we're going to read about uh, Eli later on. Eli the priest, who was a, it says he was a fat man because he and his sons would pillage from the sacrifices that would come in and kind of help themselves to the barbecue every day. So get a picture of old, blind, fat Isaac in his tent. Don't think of him as a strapping young man that Rebecca fell in love with. He's also a hundred or more years old. He's a sensual man. He also is in love with the status of his son as a hunter. Dads get proud of their kids, right? We get proud when we see our sons grow up to be big and strong and to do manly things. But you don't want that to become an obsession for you to where it blinds you to the character flaws in your own kid. We've seen this happen a thousand times, haven't we? A talented son or a talented daughter who is given every bit of permission by their parents and everybody else can see that your kid is a problem, your kid is a brat, your kid is full of pride, but they're just so excited for all the things they're accomplishing, they miss it, and then something crashes in the life and the family rips apart. That's what's going to happen here. Because verse 28 of chapter 25 told us that each parent had their favorite. Isn't that dangerous? Each parent had a favorite kid. Rebecca loved Jake and Isaac loved Big Red. This will create fault lines in your family. This seems like such an obvious thing that we should know. And I think all things considered, our culture gets this one pretty well. You know, we understand that every kid needs to be loved and every kid needs to go to college and you can't just dump it all on the oldest kid, right? We understand all that. But if you do this, even without doing it out loud, it will create fault lines in your family that a good earthquake will split apart. And kids are perceptive, you know? Kids don't always have words for what they're seeing, but they can tell. If you favor this kid over that kid, you favor the daughter over the son, that was a very common thing I ran into when I was doing youth ministry. You had a, a parent, a dad, a mom, who knew, it seemed they knew exactly what to do with raising daughters. And then they'd get a son and they would have no clue. And they would either let the guy run wild or they would just be constantly slapping down this boy. Why can't you act more like your sisters? To which the answer is, he's not a girl. He's a young boy. And he's not getting what he needs. This happens still. When you have teams in the family... You know, sometimes parents will like draft their kids because they're, they're, they're not happy with each other. So I've got these kids and you've got these kids and these are the teams and we don't like each other. And we kind of say things behind each other's back and we'll complain about dad, we'll complain about mom and oh, she's just like your dad, isn't she? And That's not good. Your brother then becomes your enemy rather than your teammate. Consider Joseph, right? Jacob is going to do exactly what his dad did. Jacob is going to favor Joseph above all the other brothers. And they're going to get so mad, they're going to throw him in a well and leave him to rot until they realize they can make some money out of it and they sell him as a slave. What about Hannah? Remember the story of Hannah? She's married, but she can't have children. So her husband marries the next hot young thing that gives him a bunch of kids. And there's rivalry because Hannah's miserable because she knows that her husband married this woman because she couldn't have kids. Penina, her name, is miserable because she knows she's just there to have children and her husband really loves Hannah the most. Favoritism is a bad thing to have in a family. Can we agree with that? doesn't matter what your preference is. It doesn't matter if your son has interests that are totally different than yours. 
You still, dads, got to go out and love your son. Kids, if your parents just are strangers to you, and mom you get, but dad just drives me nuts, don't, don't be the person that's going to pick one and, and reject the other. Well, they don't care. Yeah, they do. I promise you they do. Those things bite. Maybe you've experienced some of that. But Isaac is showing favoritism here. And this is something that I picked up on this time that I've never realized before. Why is Isaac giving the blessing to Esau in private behind closed doors with nobody else able to see? Because normally, if you're passing on the, the blessing to your son, this is a big deal. You'll have a feast. Remember when Isaac was circumcised and Abraham threw that enormous feast for everybody? And th that's what you would do. But he's doing it secretly. Why is that? I think for two reasons. Number one, he knows who God picked. And number two, it was public knowledge that Esau had sold his birthright. So the neighbors would talk. He, you gave him, but he didn't have that anymore. He gave that right up. And you're going to give it to him anyway? So he's having this private blessing in order to satisfy his own favoritism, and it's going to lead to catastrophe. You all know the story. So let's read verse 5 and go down to verse uh, 17. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Like that emphasis, when Isaac spoke to his son. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I noticed that just now, isn't that interesting? I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. There it is again. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Oh, what a good mom. So, so he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So this is the plot here. Rebecca was eavesdropping. She was like Sarah in that way. Remember when Sarah was listening to what the guests were saying and she laughed and he says, why did Sarah laugh? Well, Rebecca's doing the same thing. And she overhears Isaac's scheme. So this is why I think he was doing it secretly because he didn't even tell his wife. She had to overhear what he was going to do. She knew what God had said. God had spoken to her when the children were in her womb before she even knew which one was going to be her favorite. She knew that it was going to be the younger to serve the older. And she probably knew about the birthright thing too. Because Esau got a nickname that stuck after, out of that event. So that wasn't done in a dark corner either. But instead of dealing with it properly, she chooses to hatch a scheme of her own. So now we've got a selfish plot going over here with Isaac and Esau. We've got a selfish plot going over here with Rebekah and Jacob. There's one lesson you've got to learn from today, guys. Handle your problems in your family directly and kindly. I'll give you an example. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David is an old man. He's on his deathbed. And his oldest son, Adonijah, says, Hey, dad's on his deathbed, and I'm going to be king next. So he starts getting 
all of dad's officials to support him. And he, he gives a big feast and they declare him to be king. He gets Abiathar the priest. He gets Joab, the commander of the army. And while David is still alive, Adonijah throws a big party to let everybody know, yeah, it's me. I'm the guy. But David had promised Bathsheba that her son would be the one to inherit the throne. So Bathsheba goes to him and she says, didn't you promise me this? Adonijah is out there probably trying to get one over on you while you're old and helpless and bedridden. And then Nathan the prophet comes in and, and supports him. And David very kindly says, I meant what I said. And then they anoint and uh, crown Solomon king while Adonijah is having his big party. That's the way to handle it. To go to him, confront him kindly, gently, reminding him of what the Lord said. How, how might the story have played out differently if Rebecca had stepped in here? As soon as she heard Esau leave the tent, she, maybe she said, hold on, Esau, you wait right here. And she goes in and she has a word with her husband. This kind of shows us that the communication in this family had broken down a long time ago, huh? And they're having to find things out this way. She gets Jacob to help her not only steal something, but to deceive a blind man. That's a sick thing to do. Like we kind of miss that when you read the story. That's a sick thing to do. You're going to trick a blind man into giving the most valuable thing he owns to somebody he doesn't want to give it to. So put on Esau's clothes. Go kill the goats and I'll cook the meal. And then take the goat skins and put them on your arms and your neck. How hairy was this guy? You ever think about that? Like really, like you could pet a goat and say, yep, that's Esau. So I don't know if they, you know, trimmed it or what, but apparently he was that hairy. That's why they named him Esau, right? So you see, Rebecca is showing herself to be selfish too, because she's pushing for her favorite to get the blessing. And that's really the sense you get from this, right? They're not doing anything spiritual here. She wants her kid to get the blessing. And Jacob is showing himself to be selfish too. Believe it or not, I read a whole commentary where this guy spent like 25 pages arguing that Jacob was doing the right thing in this story. I assure you that is not the case. He knew what God wanted and he was willing to go to any lengths to do what God wants. Yeah, no. It doesn't matter if this was for God's will. This is what we do sometimes. We convince ourselves that our schemes are okay because we're doing it for the Lord. Saul did that to Samuel. Saul was supposed to kill all of the sheep and all of the oxen of the Amalekites. And Samuel shows up and he says, why do I hear cows mooing and sheep bleeding? Well, we're going we're gonna to sacrifice them, of course. We need to give sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, he says, has the Lord as great a delight in the blood of bulls and, and lambs as in obeying him? And that's that famous phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice. Well, sacrifice is a good thing. Yes, but a better thing is to be obedient. Amen? So when you see the sin in your family, and listen, it might be real sin. Isaac may really be sinning. Esau may really be carnal. But you don't get to sin in order to get what God wants. Don't make the church a point of conflict in your family, please. <laughs> don't make the pastor a curse word in your house. Well, Pastor Tyler said, so you've got to do it. Don't do that. Please, I'm begging you, please don't do that. To where now nagging and being that leaky faucet that Solomon warns us about is okay because we're doing it for Jesus. 
or we're manipulating and I'm trying to convince him that it's what he really wants to do, even though he doesn't. It's okay. It's for a good cause. Or being petty with one another. Well, I, I just, I can't spend very much time with her because she's not very spiritual and it brings me down. I've heard that. Husbands say that before. It's like, are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? 1 Peter chapter 3 gives us a great example of this. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Paul said the same thing in, to the Corinthians. He says, Even if you're married to an unbelieving husband, ladies, stay with him. He might not want to listen to the gospel, but if he sees how it changed your life, that, that could change his whole life. Paul says, how do you know that they might not be won by you? And sometimes we're like, well, I, I'm not going to talk to him anymore because his mouth is so foul and he hates God and he doesn't want to go to church. So by you treating him like a jerk, you're going to teach him that Jesus is the only way? No, what you're going to teach him is, I hate church because every time my wife goes, she comes home and she's all uppity and angry and petty towards me. Respectful and pure conduct, Peter said. Those are the words for a family. Respect and purity. We're doing pure things, God-holy things, and we're respecting one another. This is not respectful to Rebecca. It's not respectful to Isaac or to Jacob or to Esau. Respect and purity. Let's read now to verse 18. So he's all gussied up in Esau's robes and goatskin. And we read verse 18. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you? He knows something's up. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I wonder if he like coughed. I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it you found it so quickly, my son? And here Jacob is going to blaspheme. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. You'll notice that the Lord does not have any lines in this story because there ain't nobody seeking the Lord in this story. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. He's blind, but he's not stupid. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Liar. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. So Jacob executes the scheme, showing himself to be a louse and a liar, if you want my opinion. Oh, the Lord your God gave me great success. Dragging God into your, your mess. Isaac knows something up, but he's taken advantage of by his family. They take advantage of his trust. When you lie and deceive in your family, you breed suspicion of one another. When you are lying and scheming and deceiving in your family, no one's going to trust each other. Isaac doesn't really trust what's going on here. Now, in a, in a godly house, you would never think, maybe this is Jacob trying to secretly get the blessing. But apparently lies and deceit and scams were such a part of this family, he's trying to double check. 
The first time you lie to your children, to your parents, to your spouse, you introduce a ripple of doubt into every interaction. Y'all found that to be true? When you break trust, it's hard to get it back. And you can't get it back. And Jesus, in fact, tells us to forgive one another and make that process go faster. But every now and then, that thought will come back into your mind. And we become unable to love each other as we ought to. Now we could ask the question, well, they, whose fault is this? Is this Isaac's fault? It's really Isaac's fault. Because he, he should have known better. He should have listened to the Lord. He should have prayed. He shouldn't have done it in a corner. Maybe. What about Esau? Well, Esau shouldn't have been such a rascal in the first place, and he shouldn't have sold his birthright. And when Isaac said he was going to bless him, Esau should have said, no, Dad, it's actually Jacob's blessing. What about Rebecca? Is it her fault? She's manipulating everybody, pulling strings to get what she wants out of her family. She's not submitting to her husband, and she's not loving her children. Well, what about Jacob? He's the one that did the deed. He's the liar. Our families can be like that. Where everybody's so messed up, you could blame anybody. And the problem with that is you might be Isaac or Jacob or whoever, and you can look around and see everybody else's issues and feel quite justified in your own problems because they're just as bad as me. In fact, they're worse. And maybe you've got one of those long memories. You're doing the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, and your love is keeping a record of wrong. So, well, it's, it's up to them. We see this in politics, right? How far back are we going to kick the can to find out who, did, who wronged who at the beginning? And you can take that all the way back to Cain and Abel if you want to. It's your job. Here's, hear this from me now. If you're in a messed up situation in your family or anywhere else, you've got to be the one to break the cycle. It's up to you. Jacob should have run out of that room and said, Mom, I'm not doing this. Isaac should have said, you know what, this is sort of a weird situation. It was wrong for me to have a private ceremony in the first place. Let's do this right. And if anybody in this story had just talked to each other, you've got to be the one. Any one of these four could have stopped what was happening at any point in this story. It's the same thing in your family. There might be squabbles lasting decades. Maybe you just can't talk to your kids anymore. Especially as they get older, they get into those teenage years, it's hard. Dad, Mom, you've got to be the one to break the silence. And if you're the, you're the kid in that situation, you've got to be the one to do it. You've got to be the one to forgive first. You've got to be the one to die to yourself and take maybe your lumps for a while until it all gets healed. And don't expect everybody to receive it right away. Sometimes I would see people have a profound experience with God and they'd say, yeah, I've got to go back and I've got to love my family better. And they go to the family and they sit them down and they say, listen, God spoke to me and I really want to start being a better kid. And the family would just laugh at them and say, yeah, okay, we'll see how long that lasts. But you've got to be willing to endure those things and to move on and keep going and show them that you mean it. Verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. Like Judas's kiss right here. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the official passing of the capital P promise from Isaac to Jacob. And a common question that comes up here is, well, listen, 
if Isaac found out that Jacob had tricked him, why didn't he just say, uh, no, that doesn't count. We're going to mulligan. We're going to try it again. Because this is more than just a, a well-wishing. This was a formal, this was a legal, and this was a spiritual baraka. It was formal. This was not just, oh, God bless you. This was a serious sit down, lay my hands upon your head. We're having a meal. We're having a ceremony. It is a formal thing. It was legal. What Isaac said to his son here was legally binding on that family. There were, there were no contracts back then. It was, it was based on testimony. And it was also spiritual. He is calling upon God to bless his son. What's he going to go back and say, just kidding, Lord? And we're going to see later on, especially in, when he's going to talk to Esau, there's an element of prophecy at work here too. And if we're so quick to just undo the things that we do, maybe we should be a little more careful about what we say. But we can think about that later. So we know that God was at work here. We have already seen that the Lord said the younger is going to rule over the older. Malachi chapter 1 says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. But there is still plenty of blame to go around here. Well, God's will was done, therefore it was right. Yeah, remember God told Moses, speak to the rock, don't strike it. And Moses struck the rock. God still gave him water, but Moses was in deep trouble. And he didn't get to go into the promised land. Isaac was trusting his senses to do spiritual work. And he made a grievous mistake, at least to him. But he blesses Jacob, see this, with material blessing, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, military power and victory, let people serve you, let nations bow down to you, and also spiritual favor. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Same words, although not exactly, that were said to Abraham in chapter 12, right? Everyone who curses you will be cursed, everyone who blesses you will be blessed. So what God said to Isaac in 26 verse 4, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to carry the covenant I had with your father Abraham. It's very hard in terms of biblical history to overestimate the significance of this moment. Because from now on, it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The nation is going to be the nation of Israel. And Esau is going to fade into the background. He'll still pop in every now and then. But this is huge. This is a pivot point in the entirety of Scripture. God had promised back in chapter 3, verse 15, that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent. Remember? That there's going to be a kid who's going to set all this right. And that's been passed down. It went to Noah. It went to Abraham, then to Isaac, and now to Jacob. Satan is always trying to corrupt this promise. He tried to give it to Esau and his Hittite wives instead of to Jacob. But he failed again. And you might be asking yourself, why would God bless Jacob? Well, we talked about that last time. The Lord said, it was my sovereign choice. Romans 9.16, Paul said that the principle of election may stand. God was saying, because y'all need to remember, I decide. <laughs> I give the promise. You don't just get to hand it to whoever you want. I make the decisions. And also, we're going to see that Jacob will, in time, become a faithful servant of the Lord, although God is literally going to have to break him to get him to that place. But that's five chapters away. So the blessing is given. Let's read verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. 
that Isaac trembled very violently. He's shaken in his boots and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Like, I know you've got another one there. Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau, big red, lifted up his voice and wept. Jacob barely makes it out. Probably had to hustle before Esau returns and goes into his father's tent. Can you imagine the panic in this room? He's shaking violently. He's weeping with a loud voice. The big, strong hunter is weeping like a little baby. You know what this tells me? It tells me that Esau never intended to let Jacob take that birthright he sold him. He always intended to get it back. He probably thought, ah, we'll figure something out. He says, well, you know what? I've still got the Baraka, the blessing, so that's going to overrule the Bekorah, which is the birthright. So this was always in the back of his mind when his wives would say, I thought you were the oldest. Why don't you get the blessing? Don't worry. We'll figure it out, sweetheart. I can take care of it. Big Red can handle everything. But he says twice he's been cheated. That word cheated is, is Jacob. It says twice. There's a play on words here. Yaakov has vayekveni. Jacob has Jacobed me. The heel catcher has caught my heel. I was almost at the finish line and he tripped me twice. And we could say now is it really Jacob's fault? He didn't steal that birthright from you. You sold it to him. It was Esau's own right now attitude that got him in that position in the first place. I'm hungry now. Who cares about the birthright? Well, now he wants the birthright and he can't have it. And his father shouldn't have given him hope either, by the way. His father should have told him, no, that's not the way it's going to go, Esau. Hebrews tells us this, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And this is what we're seeing right now. He's weeping to repent, not of his sins, but to repent of that sale of the birthright that he had done. He wants it back, but he can't get it back. Sometimes your sin takes you so far that you cannot get back what you've lost. But all this could have been avoided if this family had loved each other properly. And didn't scheme behind one another's backs, the grief, the fear. When you lie, you hurt and you break the ones that you're supposed to care for the most. Can I just put in a very sincere plug to be honest in your house? Be honest. Tell the truth. It's so easy and simple, but lies are so easy, aren't they? Just tell the truth. Be honest. Be upfront. Painful truth now is much better then a lie exposed later. Wouldn't you agree? Verse 39 through 40, here's the, the words that are said to Esau, and you could call this an anti-blessing. 
Verse 39, Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And this is the only part that you might call good. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So Esau is begging for at least some kind of blessing. And we see here that Isaac's going to prophesy again. Again, this is emphasizing the importance of these moments. Ecclesiastes 5.2 tells us, God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. And don't be hasty to utter words before God, because they matter. Isaac had a lot of problems, but he got that at least. The things you say to God are important. Don't say them rashly. But you can see the inversion. He promised Jacob the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven. Esau gets the opposite of that in reverse order, if you read the blessings side by side. And he says that Esau will live by the sword. And what this would mean technically is you're not going to be a farmer like your brother. You're not going to be a herdsman. You're going to be a raider like Ishmael. You're going to make your living off of robbing people. A hunter of men this time. And he also prophesies that you will serve your brother. That his descendants, who were called the Edomites, would serve Israel for a long time. Let's talk about Edom. Edom means red. In Hebrew, Esau was born with ruddy, reddish skin, or maybe hair, depending on how you read that. He sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew. And the place in which they live was also called Edom because it's called the Red Hills of Seir. Edom would make its home south of the Dead Sea and to the east in a desert wilderness region. Seir, Taman, Basra, these were the key cities of the, of the nation of Edom. And they made fortresses in the rocks. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, that temple they end up at the very end was built by the Edomites. That's where they lived. It was in rocky, craggy places like that. They were astonishingly hard to attack. They could defend them against just a small number of people. And so the Edomites were very rarely conquered. They were negotiated with. But David conquered the nation of Edom. This map that we have here, all of the blue that extends out, shows you the, the area that David conquered. That included Edom. What happened, and the story is interesting if you want to go read it in 1 Kings 11. Joab, who was David's cousin and also the commander of his army, spent, it says, six months wiping out all the men of Edom. But one of the princes, a man named Hadad, fled to Egypt. And he came back and retook the throne, basically, and they became kind of a thorn in the side of Solomon. They would then rebel back and forth for years to come, kind of the, the underground resistance sort of thing. Then under King Joram, they finally rebelled in 2 Kings 8, and they finally gained their independence. And the, the worst part about Edom, biblically, is that when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, Edom did nothing. Edom was related to the Israelites. And Judah was banking on these alliances from all these nations around them. And Edom sold them out and let the, the Babylonians march right through their land and conquer Jerusalem. That's what the whole book of Obadiah is about. Read the book of Obadiah. It's all about judgment on Edom for neglecting to defend their brothers in Israel. And I will read verses 2 and 3. It's only a one-chapter book. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. 
in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God prophesied their destruction, and even to this day, there is no land of Edom. It's modern-day Jordan, but you're not going to find any Edomites. You could say the final revenge of the Edomites was the dynasty of King Herod. Herod was what was called an Edomian, and you can hear how Edom is like Edom. So that was a Hellenized version of the name Edom. He was a descendant of Esau. So you can see, among other reasons, why the people in Jesus' day hated King Herod. Because not only was he not a Jew, he was a descendant of Esau. And that really would have annoyed them, let's say. But we can see, as we look at the history of Israel and Edom, that eventually it did pan out that God made the right choice, didn't he? God always makes the right choice. Hebrews 11.20, in fact, will say, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. This does not excuse the lies, but it does show that God was guiding these events. That the blessing was given to Israel, but Isaac was able to prophesy independence over his favorite son. So that's some of the history. And as we go through the Bible, the Edomites are going to pop up over and over again. You've got to remember that those were descendants of Esau. Verse 41 now. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, free to Laban, my brother, in Haran. That's the place that Abraham left, if you remember. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? What do you think family dinners were like now? Esau the hunter is ready to kill his own brother. Maybe he's talking kind of like David did. He's like, I've slain lions and I've slain bears. You are going to be no problem, little bro. Now we know Isaac is going to live for a long while yet, at least 50 years, probably more. But this was not known. Maybe, as I said, maybe he was sick. We don't know. So Rebecca gets the family together and says, let's work this out. No, she doesn't. <laughs> she concocts another scheme. We're going to send Jacob away to her brother to be safe. The plan is when things calm down, I'll call for you, Jacob. She's never going to call for him. He's going to be in Laban's house for 20 years, which explains why in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is afraid when he goes to meet Esau. Even though it turns out he had no reason to be afraid that Esau was actually happy to see him. But mom said, I'll let you know when Esau's calmed down. And it's been 20 years and there's been no word from mom that Esau's calmed down. But less ironic and more tragic, this is the last time Jacob is going to see his mother. So you thought you were doing something nice for your son. Really, you were scheming to get your own way in your family, and you're going to lose your son. The family of Abraham and Isaac has become like Cain and Abel, huh? One lie in a family builds on another. One act of selfishness builds on another until the family can't hardly be a family anymore. It's really sad how we become so accepting of resentment in our family. Families, I should say. Isn't it amazing how many, just, just start paying attention to this and it'll surprise you. How many movies and TV shows and things like that are all talking about your real family are your friends. Don't you hear that like all the time? And 
It's all about, I love my friends and we'll go through anything together. And even when they're a jerk, we'll stick by each other. But I'll never go home to my dad because he's, he's an awful person. It's really strange, isn't it? It shouldn't be that way. Yes, be loyal and be great to your friends. But you should be doing all those things you're doing for your friends and all the, that independence and all that love and all sticking up for them even when they're wrong. You're supposed to do that for your family too. Got to correct that. Your family is a mess. It cannot be fixed in a moment when you've taken a lifetime to make it. But God can do amazing things. But he's not going to get the chance in this story. Let's read verse 46 now, and we're going to get into chapter 40, uh, 28. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. <laughs> if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Isn't that a manipulative thing to say? You've got to get her character there, don't we? What's the point of me even living if he marries another woman like that? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Well, these verses are going to launch us into the next section here that we'll get into next time. Rebekah was not lying about the wives, but again, more manipulation from her. And Isaac is going to send Jacob away to find a to find a wife from the same place he did, from the family of Laban. And that's going to be a whole adventure on its own. He says, may God Almighty bless you, in verse 3, that is in Hebrew, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he renews the promise over his life. And Jacob leaves. It's going to be his story from now on. Families break. Divorce, sibling rivalry, children run away when we don't love each other properly. There's never one culprit when these things happen. You tell the story and it makes it out like you're the victim. And you might be a victim of some things, but everybody is usually at fault. Colossians 3, Paul makes it real simple for us. Verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We could spend a year looking at those four verses, huh? Everyone's got a job. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh, as in don't feel like you've got to make her submit. <laughs> children, obey your parents in everything. Why? Because this pleases the Lord. But then on the other hand, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There are some of you in this room who were discouraged by your father for provoking you or your mother growing up. Are you doing yours? That's the question for today. Evaluate your life because you can't control those other folks. Wives, are you submitting to your husband or are you trying to bully and manipulate and sneak your way? Husbands, are you loving your wife or are you treating her like an accessory to your life? And being harsh with her. Children, are you obeying your parents? And later on, of course, the Bible talks about leaving your father and mother, but we still honor our parents. 
Are you honoring your parents even as an adult? Because it pleases the Lord to do that. And fathers, mothers, are you provoking your kids? Or are you making it a joy for them to obey you? Are you doing yours? Go home and, and pray it through and make sure you're doing your job. Well, verses 6 through 9 to come to the end. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. This is so sad to me. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Esau marries an Ishmaelite in order to gain his family's approval. When he saw that Jacob was blessed and sent away because they couldn't stand his Hittite wives, he had a moment of clarity and realized, I've really made a mess of things in my family. And he goes out and marries an Ishmaelite. It's kind of like that sad, pathetic, me too, me too. Mahalath was Ishmael's daughter. In chapter 36, verse 3, she'll be called Basamath. Maybe that was a nickname or a common name. We already talked about that. All this could have been avoided, huh? All could have been avoided in your family too, Christian. That's the good news. Real quick note, if you were in the IBS class, tonight is a classic example of what an inclusio is. Did you see how this section began talking about Esau's wives and then it ended talking about Esau's wives and that's how you know where the main section is? That's what an inclusio is. So there's your, there's your illustration for free. Selfishness will wreck a family. Don't lie. Be honest. Be upfront and serve one another and serve the Lord first. You might look at this and say, how could God bless that family? Let me ask you a question. How could God bless your family? Well, it's His grace. Same answer. Be glad of God's grace. You're saved by grace. You're not saved by having the perfect family. But you should let the forgiveness and the love that have been shown to you be your motivation to be kind and gracious to your family. And the good news is that God can heal all things. It doesn't matter if it's been decades in the making. God can clean up that mess. And He wants to use you to do it. It starts with humility, selflessness, and honesty.